When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Independent Voices, this is Double Take, a podcast in which we chat to the writers of some of our favourite comment pieces. I'm your host, Kirsty Major. This week, we're taking another look at Andy Grice's column, If Corbyn Doesn't Stop the War Within His Party Now, The Only Winners Will Be The Tories. If you didn't catch it first time, here's Andy to read it out. In my diary, I have the words Labour Leadership, Election, question mark, pencilled in for the 23rd of September. The only thing I got right was the question mark. The words were written when Theresa May called the snap general election. Along with many politicians in all parties, I believed she would win a big majority. And that Chukar Amuna and Yvette Cooper would then challenge Jeremy Corbyn for his job. Instead, we might have a Conservative Party leadership election this autumn. At a time of political turmoil, one thing is certain. Corbyn is totally secure. After his brilliant election campaign, many of his Labour MP critics admit they were wrong about him and that he's earned the right to lead the party into another election. Despite that, the Corbynistas have been less magnanimous in their internal victory than their opponents have been in defeat. In remarks which deserved more attention, Ian Lavery, an ally promoted by Corbyn to Labour chair after jointly running the party's campaign, said Labour might be too broad a church. That was seen as a declaration of war by Corbyn's critics. If they could not accept that the party is now a socialist one, they should get out. It might have been dismissed as an isolated incident, but it's not. Corbynistas are moving quickly to cement their grip on the party. Despite a superficial post-election unity, some MPs previously critical of Corbyn have already been put on notice that they will be deselected unless they toe the left-wing line. There are plans to change Labour's rules, to bolster Corbyn's position on the party's National Executive Committee, the NEC, ensure that a left-winger would be on the ballot paper in future leadership elections and possibly make it easier for constituency parties to deselect MPs. An unnecessary battle over the rulebook will loom large at the party's Brighton conference in September. When Corbyn reshuffled his front-bench pack, only one critic, Owen Smith, was brought back into the shadow cabinet, leaving talented figures languishing on the back benches. Corbyn allies insist several critics were handed junior frontbench roles, saying it would be wrong to change a loyal, winning team. Corbyn's honeymoon with the voters continues, and he's a more assured Commons performer than before the election now. But amongst his old enemies, his honeymoon is over. The left-wing manoeuvring has alarmed those on the party's centre-right, who have their own plans, as shown by Labour first. After Labour's unexpectedly strong showing on 8th of June, the anti-Corbyn wing told me that their pre-election plan for a breakaway centre party was, quote, dead. Only three weeks later, they're talking about it again. Two things have put it back on the agenda, the left-wingers' moves and Corbyn's stance on the EU. Sir Keir Starmer, the shadow Brexit secretary, has the most unenviable job in the Labour Party, bridging the divide between the Corbyn John McDonnell camp, who do not want to die in the ditch opposing hard Brexit, and those Labour MPs who believe the election result means the party must step up to the plate and fight for a soft Brexit. 
Starmer's painstaking work was interrupted when Amuna tabled an amendment to the Queen's speech calling for the UK to stay in the single market. 49 Labour MPs voted for it, defying Corbyn's line to abstain. It wasn't really an anti-Corbyn revolt, more a marker for parliamentary battles to come on Brexit. But it has inevitably fueled tensions between Labour's two tribes. Starmer believed a consensus was possible and saw Amuna's move as premature since pro-EU Tory MPs were never going to rebel on the Queen's speech, but might do later. If Labour does split, then Brexit would be the catalyst, if Corbyn does not move far enough for Labour's centre-right. The seeds of a party might just be planted in cross-party cooperation, which steers the country to a more sensible, softer Brexit than the version May clings to, but for which there's no majority in Parliament. Despite headlines about Labour being in meltdown over Brexit, it is the Tories who are again torn apart over Europe. Labour should not allow its small differences to divert attention from that. After such a strong election, and with a good chance of winning the next one, the idea that Labour should be drifting back towards civil war seems crazy. But it is happening. Both Labour camps should now observe a ceasefire. Corbyn's critics should get fully behind him for the sake of the party, in return, he should be a consensual rather than a factional leader, which would enhance his credentials as a Prime Minister-in-waiting. Otherwise, the only winners will be the Tories. Up next, we chat to Andy about whether the war over Labour's rule book is really as unnecessary as he makes out. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Andy, thanks for reading your Hi. piece. So you say in your piece that it was the left of Labour who fired the first shot, as it were, in its civil war this time around. Do you really think that's the case? Do you not think that there's... Is it not a chicken and egg situation? Also, the right of the party have been a little bit guilty of doing the same. Well, I was trying to say a plague on both your houses, in a way. I wasn't particularly taking sides in the civil war. I was standing back as a neutral observer and thinking, why are these two factions going for each other when they have a unique opportunity to attack the Tories, to potentially win another general election, which may come along sooner rather than later? And I was astonished that the battle that we saw before the election, and frankly, since Jeremy Corbyn has been elected Labour leader in 2015, had resumed when Labour had had a good election, had done well, had won, gained seats against expectations, against their own expectations. And I was surprised that the hostility was so marked on both sides. I thought that most Labour MPs were rallying behind Jeremy Corbyn, even the ones who doubted his ability to do well at the ballot box, had to eat their own words, like some of us in the commentariat, and um, admit that he'd done better than they expected and that he was, he was secure as Labour leader, that he would lead the party into the next general election if it comes any time soon. But it seemed to me that those on the left, the Corbyn supporters, were more anxious to resume the civil war than many of the MPs. So, yes, if I blame one side more than the other, I think the Corbynistas are 
while wanting, understandably, to entrench their grip on the party, have fired the first shots uh, in a war that doesn't really need to happen. There's no threat to Jeremy Corbyn. Some of the rule changes that I mentioned in the piece were planned when uh, Momentum and other Corbyn allies thought that there would be an attempt to dislodge him if he didn't do well at the general election, but he did do well and there's no attempt to get rid of him. If an attempt were to um, were made to get rid of him now, it would fail, as it failed last year when Owen Smith stood against him, and it would fail even more spectacularly now. So there's no need to change the rules and rig the system to entrench his position because his position is totally secure. It seems like there's a conflation between the Labour civil war and Brexit. So I feel like maybe some people on the left saw Trucker and Mooner's amendment to the Queen's speech as the first shot. And they were like, right, the leadership battle is back on. When actually maybe was that an issue of conscience for Trucker and Mooner, do you think? I think it was much more about Brexit than it was about the internal Labour Party power struggle. So it would be wrong to see it uh, as part of the battle between Corbyn and his internal critics, the Blairites, those on the centre-right, some of whom have never accepted him as Labour leader until now, and probably privately some still don't, but they are being loyal, uh, given his, his brilliant election performance. But I think there is a problem coming down the track for Labour on Brexit. Um, one person on the left said to me today that there is a split uh, in the party and it's not between left and right. It's between um, those who are prepared to put up a fight on Brexit and those who, who, who want to accept it. If you like, between hard Brexit and those who are prepared, those who are prepared to accept Theresa May's version uh, and those who want to fight it hard and say, for example, we want to stay in the single market like Chukramuna. So Corbyn did a very clever job at the general election on Brexit. He managed to ride both horses. He managed to attract votes from people who wanted Labour to take a stronger stance uh, and oppose Brexit. And amongst working class voters who had concerns about immigration, who probably voted leave in the referendum last year. And um, a lot of people thought Labour would fall between two stools and get no support. But to his credit, Corbyn managed to attract people in both camps. Now, with the Brexit legislation coming down the track in Parliament, with the negotiations beginning with the rest of the EU, it's going to be much harder for Corbyn to sit on the fence. And so, you know, there is definitely uh, a chance of Labour divisions coming to the fore on Brexit. But it's not anything about getting rid of Corbyn or um, fighting him or destabilising him. The 49 Labour MPs led by Chukwu Hamuna who voted for an amendment to the Queen's speech saying we should stay in the single market did it largely out of principle. It wasn't an anti-Corbyn move. I think there's people who see that move as quite undemocratic, though, when you had a public who voted for, you know, a huge increase in Labour's share of the vote this time around and voted for a Labour which didn't oppose a hard Brexit, but neither really presented an, an alternative, the sort of softish Brexit. Mm. Um, and then you have people in the party like Trucker Muna who totally opposed Brexit and want retention in the single market. And actually, did people didn't vote for that. That wasn't in the manifesto. So how can they then go on to say that this is the Brexit that they want to chase? Do you think there's something undemocratic about that? Or are they working on principle and they think they know better for the public? Well, it's very difficult because you've got um, a majority of vast majority of Labour MPs voted to remain in the referendum. Um, but of the uh, MPs that were elected at last month's general election, 
only about 100 out of 262 uh, constituencies they now represent voted Remain. So there's a big gap between the MPs and their constituents, if you like. But it leads you to back to the fundamental question of what are MPs for? Are they there to just represent mm. their constituents or are they there to exercise their conscience and be uh, swayed by the arguments? It's even more complicated than that because a majority of Labour voters uh, did vote Remain, even though they're not piled up evenly in constituencies. So Labour is frankly split down the middle on this crucial issue, the biggest challenge facing the country since the Second World War on Brexit. And um, so it's been pulled in two different directions. But the, there's a strong argument for saying now, um, given the results of the general election, things have changed, even since that manifesto that you referred to, because clearly the country rejected Theresa May's version of hard Brexit. And the one good thing about Corbyn's position is that he's kept his options open. So I suspect he's waiting to see how negotiations go, how public opinion changes, if it does. He could conceivably become the leader who wants a soft Brexit. He could even say, we want single market, because if you look at that manifesto, it does say Labour wants the exact same benefits of, uh, that we now get from the single market and the EU customs union. So he's maintained flexibility. But the time when he can have that kind of holding position is running out and that he will at some point have to decide. But I, I personally think public opinion is starting to change. We've seen the decline in living standards. We've seen wages running behind inflation. Recent opinion polls have suggested that people don't prioritise immigration over the economy. Clearly, when people voted in the referendum last year, immigration was a very big issue and it trumped their feelings about the economy. Inevitably, as we start to see the implications of Brexit, uh, our ability to do trade deals and so on with, with the rest of the EU, what, what, we might, what we might lose as a country, people may get start to have second thoughts. And I'm not saying, as some believe, that that means Brexit will be stopped, but I do think that could uh, influence Britain's position uh, in the negotiations with the rest of the EU. So it's not impossible to imagine a situation where public opinion does change. And Labour, because Corbyn has maintained flexibility, uh, with his rather vague, deliberately uh, obscure policy, if you like, that Labour could become the party of soft Brexit. That's what Chuka Amuna is fighting for. You referred to Keir Starmer in your piece having the worst job in the UK. <laughs> um, and it did seem like his hand got turned a little bit too quickly by the Queen's Speech Amendment. Yeah. So you can, you can understand why people perceive that as a leadership threat when it, when it comes so early. Um, but at the same time, it, it, like you say, is an issue of conscience. It's funny that, that there seems to be so many battle lines that are being drawn. You have Brexit and then you have between the right and the left. And as you say in your piece, it just seems to detract from the bigger issue, which is you're an opposition party. Who are you in, actually in opposition to? And that is the Tories who really you should let die on the Brexit sword, as it were. Yeah. Do you think that Labour are given enough space to that to happen or they're just turning inwardly again? Well, there's a danger that they turn inwardly, and that's why I wrote the piece, because really, if Labour can't unite now, when the Tories are frankly in disarray, 
I've worked at Westminster as a political journalist for 35 years and I can barely remember a party being in such a bad state as the Conservatives are in now. Rather than Labour. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and so, but that should really make Labour unite behind A, attacking the Tories, B, saying we are the government in waiting, we have a Prime Minister in waiting, these are our policies. Clearly many of the policies in Labour's manifesto were popular with voters, that's why they did well. They're winning the argument on austerity. They're forcing the Conservatives to rethink some of their own assumptions on the economy. And so to lapse back into an argument about the Labour rule book and whether we should make it easier to deselect our MPs seems to me the height of stupidity. And a lot of the unsympathetic newspapers to Labour have seized on this battle uh, and it, it allows them to if you like let the conservatives off the hook the tory party is deeply divided on europe and deeply divided over whether theresa may should remain as prime minister for any length of time and really that's the big picture in british politics is not the arcane arguments about what labor uh, rule number three subsection b paragraph two says but you wouldn't know that looking at how labor are now fighting each other over the rule book it, it's to me it's stupid they should they've got a unique opportunity to get into power under jeremy corbyn and they risk undermining their prospects if they start fighting each other and it just continues what it's a really tired old narrative. I think a lot of people are bored by it by now, by the Labour Civil War, and people want to see people behind the movement and want to see them take on the Tories when they're at their strongest. So come September, what do you think the big narratives will be around conference season? Well, it's complicated because some of the rule changes will come up this year and some probably next year. So on deselection, which I mentioned... Clearly, several Labour MPs have been warned since the election. In the few weeks that have gone by, they've been put on notice that they need to get behind Jeremy Corbyn. Some have been asked to apologise for criticising him in the past. I suspect the battle on the rules on deselection will be put off until next year. Um, where, but this year we will see, I suspect, in Brighton in September, an attempt to change the rules on how the Labour Party leader is elected. Again, this was first put up by John McDonnell, uh, the Shadow Chancellor, a very close ally of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, the so-called McDonnell Amendment would make it easier uh, to ensure that a left-wing candidate got on the ballot paper when Labour chooses its leader. At the moment, the shortlist for the contest to elect a Labour leader is decided only by MPs, and uh, anyone wanting to stand has to get the support of 15% of MPs. You'll remember that Jeremy Corbyn had to get uh, nominations from people who didn't support his views, were not by any means on the left. In order to get on the pallet paper, they thought he had no chance of winning, and he surprised them all by winning two years ago. Uh, so to, to avoid that situation next time, uh, John McDonnell and others on the left want to ensure a, a lower threshold, uh, perhaps 5% of MPs, which would ensure that a left-wing candidate got on, or possibly to widen the franchise to allow other sections of the Labour movement, the trade unions and local parties, to also uh, have a hurdle for them to get 15% of their support, would get somebody on the ballot paper and be allowed to enter the Labour leadership race in future. But to me, it's unnecessary. It was meant to... Uh, protect the left when Corbyn was under threat and he's not under threat. So it's a distraction. Uh, they, they, the sensible thing for Jeremy Corbyn to do uh, and the Labour Party's National Executive Committee to do when it discusses the conference is to put that off until next year and have a debate on, on everything next year, by which time there could even have been a general election. We don't know. Uh, the Conservatives don't want one because they think Jeremy Corbyn would win it, but it's possible that because of Theresa May's precarious position, she may be forced out. 
if the Tories elect another leader and prime minister, that would increase the pressure on them to go to the country to have another general election. So, you know, Jeremy Corbyn could could be in power in a, in a year's time. So, again, to be distracted by these rather obscure uh, disputes about the Labour Party rules seems not, not the main game for Labour. And for the Tory conference, what do you think is going to be on the agenda? First of all, the activists, the members, will be feeling very sore that Theresa May called an unnecessary election and lost her majority. I suspect that their fear of a Labour government and their intrinsic loyalty, uh, there's an old saying that loyalty is the Tory party's secret weapon, and it's true. Uh, They do uh, remain loyal to their leader will mean that the activists will grumble uh, off stage, but not on the platform. And, and um, there'll be some noises off, but not many. A bit of a debate at the fringe meetings about it. But the real threat to Theresa May is that in the media's eyes, the her conference is seen as a kind of unofficial beauty contest for the people who want to succeed her. Mm-hmm. So the media will be looking very closely at Boris Johnson, at David Davis, at Philip Hammond, at Amber Rudd, And similarly, the next generation of Tory MPs, people who were elected in 2010 and 2015, a lot of those Tory MPs think the party should skip a generation. Not surprisingly, because then one of them would have a chance of becoming leader. They include people like Priti Patel, Dominic Raab. They're not well known to the public, but they are making a case for the party to move to uh, the Young Turks to take over. The danger for Theresa May is that this kind of unofficial leadership stakes becomes the focus of conference and inevitably reminds us that she may not be there for very long. So it won't be an easy conference for her. Might be a last. And not that we're in the game of predictions anymore. But if you had had to put your money on someone for the next Conservative leader, who would it be? It depends when when the election happens. Um, If we say it's in a year's time, like... If it were to happen sooner, then David Davis would be in a very strong position. He, the Brexit secretary, he's trusted by the Eurosceptics because he was a Leave campaigner in the referendum. But he's also winning plaudits for some of the pro-European Tories, which is interesting because he's more pragmatic about the negotiations. He's our man in the talks in Brussels with the EU 27 countries. And he's shown more flexibility than Theresa May. So my money would be on him if it comes sooner. If it comes later, then Boris Johnson, you can never entirely rule him out. Amber Rudd is one to watch. She has a tiny majority in her Hastings constituency, but she would be a very strong uh, candidate, particularly after Brexit, uh, after the negotiations have finished in March 2019. She wouldn't win the trust of the hardline Brexiteers now, but if they were looking for someone, a fresh face to take over, after Brexit has been done and dusted, maybe she would come to the fore. Uh, Philip Hammond, probably disliked too much by the Brexiteer Tory MPs, but he's just now flexing his muscles. Theresa May was going to sack him. She can't sack him now uh, because her own position is so fragile. So he's one to watch. And there'll be others uh, coming through as well. Well, thank you very much. We'll see you in 2019. <laughs> thank you. If you like the show, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Acast or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. If you want to share your thoughts on the episode, you can tweet me at Kirsty underscore Major. Double Take is produced by Helen Hoddenot. Holly Baxter is the acting editor of Independent Voices. See you next week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups... 
Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.